last week, um, I think it was last Sunday, it may have been the Sunday before, marked the, the 50th anniversary of the, the pastorate of John MacArthur, Grace Community Church, they're out there in Los Angeles. Many of you have heard of John MacArthur and benefited from his ministry, his books or radio ministry. But it's significant that 50 years have been spent in one church because church hopping is common, um, even amongst pastors, just moving from one place to another for various reasons. Most recent studies say that the, the longest uh, or the length of time that a pastor, the average length of time that a pastor will stay at a particular church has actually increased a little bit um, in the last few years. The average length in 2008 was four years, and in 2016 it went up to six years, which is a good, a good sign. Uh, of course, the longer the men like John MacArthur serve in one church, um, the higher that number will go. It kind of skews the average if you stay in a place for 50 years. Um, a couple of years ago, a couple of us went down to Louisville, Kentucky, to, together for the gospel conference. And uh, the sort of the MC of the conference was Pastor Mark Dever of um, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He's kind of well known for having everybody stand up. And there was 8,000 men. We were in the KFC Yum Center and where the Louisville, whatever they are, play basketball. Um, 8,000 pastors and church leaders there. And he had everybody stand up. And he said, now, if you're if you've been a pastor uh, at the same church for less than 10 years, everybody sit down. So we sat down. Less than 20 years, sit down. Everybody sat down. 30 years, 40 years. He got up into the upper 40s, and out of the 8,000 or so guys standing there, there were two guys left standing. And he had a prize to give them. This is kind of what he does. And he had a prize to give them. It was a book. The last two guys standing were down in the front row. Of course, we couldn't see. We were up in the nosebleed section. One was John MacArthur. The other one was a guy named Ian Murray, who was a pastor in England. He started Banner of Truth Trust. Um, so at that time, I think it was something like 47 years, and John MacArthur won, and he had him go up and get his prize. It was a biography of John MacArthur written by Ian Murray. <laughs> anyway, grace to you, MacArthur's radio and his, his podcast ministry. Last week, they uploaded an interview, actually a series of interviews, in which he recounted the early years of his ministry, as well as some of the kind of the theological controversies that he had been involved in over the years. And if you've followed any of that, you can think of a few of them. One of the most well-known of those controversies that MacArthur had been involved in was over the issue of what came to be nicknamed Lordship Salvation. Essentially, the question that MacArthur was trying to answer in addressing that issue was what happens to a person after the new birth? In other words, what does Jesus mean when he says, follow me or be my disciple? And so in this interview, one of the reasons he says that he decided to put an answer to those questions down on paper was because the dominant theology of the evangelical world that he was a part of in that day, in the, especially in the 80s, but it really has continued, that, that world kind of believed that, and these are his words. He says, quote, you can be a Christian and not have a changed life. You can be a Christian and not confess Jesus as Lord. You can be a Christian and not repent. You can even be a Christian and at some point stop believing, and eternal security will still hold on to you. Well, he put this down on paper in a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. Probably you've 
Maybe some of you have read that. And in this book, he, in the, in the words of J.I. Packer, he says, shows what, what saving faith in, in Christ actually amounts to. That was the point of his book, to show what saving faith in Christ actually amounts to. And in the foreword to the book, a man by the name of James Montgomery Boyce, um, he was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, which he was one of the most influential kind of reformed thinkers of the 20th century. He said this, he said, MacArthur's answers address themselves to what I consider to be the greatest weakness of contemporary evangelical uh, Christianity in America. Did I say weakness? It is more. It is a tragic error. It is the idea, where did it ever come from, that one can be a Christian without being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reduces the gospel to the mere fact of, of Christ having died for sinners, requiring of sinners only that they acknowledge this by the, by the barest intellectual assent, and then assures them of their eternal security when they may very well not be born again. This view bends faith beyond recognition, at least for those who know what the Bible says about faith. And it promises a, a false peace to thousands who've given verbal assent to this reductionist Christianity but are not truly a part of God's family. And this idea that you can be, a, that you can be saved without installing Jesus as Lord over your life, to kind of use a strange way of putting it, that you can be saved without submitting to his lordship, without obeying his commands, it's actually still a pretty common belief. MacArthur went on to say during that interview, he said the, the defenders of that issue that the book was written to address have disappeared. Those defending it have disappeared. But the issue has not disappeared. The people that we were dealing with, that were dealing with that at that time, that were carrying the case against Jesus as Lord, they're gone. But the issue hasn't gone away. MacArthur would then go on to say this, speaking of the seminaries that was producing, producing this information. He, he said, they filled many Bible colleges and many, many evangelical churches with their graduates. So this doctrine was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. And it really had never been critiqued. It had never been called into question or, or measured against the Bible. So what does the Bible say about this issue? What does the Bible say about salvation and lordship? Let me ask it a different way. Is salvation wholly a work of God? Is God sovereign in salvation? Is it true, as MacArthur would say in that book, that salvation is the work of God and it is a complete work? And his work encompasses repentance and the confession of Jesus as Lord and submission and an obedient heart and loving the Lord, that that's all the work of salvation? Is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, what did Jesus say? So open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 8. If you're not there yet, as we continue our study of John's gospel, um, we're going to look this morning just at two verses. Two verses that really just make up one sentence, some of which has become a popular saying, especially for some reason, especially amongst politicians who really don't know what they're saying when they say this. You'll know it as soon as you hear it. But in these two verses, Jesus answers this question, I believe, finally and definitively. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's just stop and pray one more time. Lord, we need to be set free. Some of us need to be set free from slavery of sin, and so, Lord, I pray that you would set us free, that we would know the truth, that we would abide in your word, that we might be called your disciples. Help us to understand these things, Lord. Give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we could take that, that one popular phrase, the, the truth will set you free, and we could give tons of examples of that being taken out of context and, and applied to any number of situations. I'm not going to do that really today, but I did find one Psychology Today magazine uh, had an article. I don't normally read Psychology Today magazine, but I did find this article. Um, and, and it insisted that we needed to speak about our own personal truth in order to set ourselves free from whatever it was that was holding us back. We need to speak our personal truth to set us free, ourselves free, from whatever it is that's holding us back. Really, the article was insisting that we stop using this one phrase. But other than that, I'm okay. Stop using that phrase, this article said. I don't care if you use that phrase or not. Here's the list of my problems, but other than that, I'm okay. I'd rather we stop using the phrase, your own personal truth, because that is a ridiculous statement. Either something's true or it's not. See, Jesus is the origin of this statement. He says it right here. So what truth is Jesus talking about? Well, we need to remember the context of these words when he says these things in verses 31 and 32. He says this in the midst of a, of a debate with Jewish leadership, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, and it takes place in the temple, actually in the courtyard to the temple. Verse 20 tells us that. They're still there. And Jesus kind of suddenly turns to those who had believed in him, verse 30 says, and he addresses them specifically. So, so look at this again in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And we don't know, what we don't know about this setting is if they were all standing together in one place. We don't know if they had, if these people had indicated that they believed now in some way or if Jesus just knew because gee, he's Jesus and he knows the hearts of men. We don't know how he understood this. We don't know really the details there, but at any rate, somehow, and for some reason now, he turns and addresses those who had believed in him. And I also need to acknowledge something right here. I, I didn't mention this last week as we looked at the previous passage, the previous verses, but if you read this entire scene in one, one sitting, if you read really chapter 8 or chapter 6, 7, and 8 in, in one sitting, even, even uh, when what we see here is, is what, what becomes clear in the exchange that happens after this. Even beginning right here in verse 33, in the next verse, 
you can clearly see that, that this belief that we're talking about in 30 and 31, it's evidently not a genuine belief. At least for whoever the, whoever the spokesman is, whoever it is that's speaking the words to Jesus, whoever's interacting with him on behalf of the crowd of the people. We don't even know if it's the same person that says what he says each time as you look through and see the interchange back and forth through the rest of the chapter. Really, verse 33 says, they answered him. Well, we know that they probably didn't say it in unison. It was someone who was their spokesperson. But this apparent lack of of a genuine belief, it just seems to make Jesus' words here in these two verses, 31 and 32, all the more necessary, all the more urgent. These words are an essential call for all who claim to be Christians, all who claim to be converted to Christ. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. All throughout John's gospel, as you read through this gospel according to John, we, the the readers, we encounter two types of belief. We've actually seen it before. To put it simply, they end up being either true belief or false belief. Maybe we should put it this way. We see either true disciples or false disciples. The most glaring example of this, and even though we haven't gotten there yet, you know who this is, the most glaring example of a false disciple, a false belief, is Judas. He was one of them, yet he was so clearly not one of them. And John will even point this out. He didn't really believe. But just drawing on what we've seen so far in our study, just up to this point in the gospel according to John, back in chapter 6, verse 66, it points out, John points out for us the fruit of this kind of false belief. So John 6.66 says this, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They no longer followed him as disciples. Even earlier in this gospel, John had explained back in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, John writes, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Think about that for a minute. Sometimes Jesus does not believe a person's confession of faith. Let that sink in. Sometimes Jesus does not believe a person's confession of faith. We have developed our theological language to the point where we will often describe the new birth. We will often describe becoming a Christian as accepting Jesus. But it's far more important. It is far more important to understand that we are accepted by him. That he would entrust himself to us, he says. One preacher put it this way. Jesus demands not a false and fleeting affirmation, but a true and enduring faith. That's good. Jesus demands not a false and fleeting affirmation, but a a true and enduring faith. So what we can't do here in John chapter 8, but we are in danger of doing, is disconnecting verse 30 from verse 31. 
or really kind of pulling this entire portion of Scripture apart and using verses 31 and 32 and Jesus' statement here as their own kind of, kind of quaint little saying. But Jesus says this in the midst of battle. He's saying this in the midst of battle. His enemies are standing there arguing with him that he is not the Messiah. Some have come to believe in him in some way. And he turns to them and he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. He turns to those who who would trust in them. Trust in him and, and he pleads with them. And he encourages them. And he tells them the truth. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And by the way, Scripture's not specific on this, but I'm convinced that there are some in this crowd who genuinely believe in Him or will come to genuinely believe in Him. When you read through the rest of the chapter, it's like the crowd turns on him and, and becomes very adversarial. But I think that there's, it's very possible that there are some there who genuinely believe in him. By the time he reaches the cross, there are still some who would be called disciples. That group is pretty small. But there are still some who would be called disciples. And John is going to mention near the end of his book several women by name, for example, who stood there with his mother watching Jesus die, and then are still there in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 when the group of the church, the 12, the 11, and a few other people go to the upper room to pray. There are genuine disciples who have abided in his word. So for some who heard these words, they were no doubt strengthened by the idea of being set free. Now remember, all throughout John's gospel, Uh, If you've heard kind of the previous passages, uh, the previous messages, sermons, he's using this kind of courtroom imagery. It's going to come up here and there throughout the rest of uh, the book. And we set it aside, though, for the past couple of weeks, but I want to pick up this idea again, at least for a moment. See, in a court setting, as John is, is speaking here, in a court setting, belief, as John uses the word, takes on a a particular kind of legal or even forensic nature. So here's what that means. Think of this in legal terms, okay? Back in verses 28 and 29, Jesus testified, so you're thinking in legal terms, Jesus testified that God the Father is his witness. And as a result of that, some of those in this courtroom, as it were, seem to be prepared to accept Jesus' claims. They seem to be prepared to, to believe his testimony. And so at this point, Jesus now turns to them as if he's turning to the jury, kind of. He turns to them, to those who seem to be prepared to accept his claims, and he describes for them the true nature of belief. And he begins by describing the proof of discipleship. This is the proof of discipleship. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, disciple, that word disciple, is the most common term for a follower of Jesus. It's actually a fairly generic term, though. Uh, Many rabbis had disciples. It's used um, 
We usually think of it in a positive way as those who are, uh, you usually think of the 12, we usually think of those who are genuinely followers of Jesus, but, but it was a fairly generic term and it really just means follower. Or more specifically, it means one who adheres to the teaching of another. And very often, uh, especially in New Testament times during this time, uh, young men would follow a rabbi around as they learned from him particularly as they themselves trained to then become rabbis later. And they were his disciples, whoever that rabbi happened to be. And so, as I said, typically when we think of Jesus' disciples, we generally think of the twelve, those men who would later go on to become apostles, of course, except for Judas. An apostle was a specific office for a specific time for specific men. Later in the New Testament, Jesus' genuine disciples, those who adhered to his teaching even after he was gone, those who had come to to believe his teaching after his ascension even, his genuine disciples would, would occasionally be called Christians, but most often they're actually referred to as saints. So when Jesus says here, truly my disciples, this is the category of person that he's talking about. Those who will later be called saints. I'm trying to be very specific about this because it can get a little bit confusing. See, again, later in the New Testament, after his resurrection, the Bible will clarify that in reality there are only two categories of people, sinner or saint. See, in the time of the Gospels, in the Jewish mind, there's all kinds of categories of people. There's Jew and Gentile, there's slave and free, there's Pharisee and Sadducee and Samaritan and man and woman, and and the Gospel makes no such distinctions. It just changes your identity from sinner to saint. And with this first statement here, Jesus explains the proof of discipleship When he says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. According to Jesus, this here is the single condition that demonstrates the the proof of our confession of faith. It demonstrates the proof of our salvation. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. It's It's almost like Jesus isn't really interested in assembling a great amount of kind of loosely connected, loosely committed followers who show up for a really great show, who show up for signs and wonders, who show up for a, a rockin' band and some glory glitter. If you don't know what that is, don't Google it. Instead, he desires those who will abide in his word. This word that the ESV, the English Standard Translation that I use, um, that it, it translates here as abide. It's not, it's not really an easy word to translate. It means to continue in or to remain in or to hold to. But I truly believe that, that abide is one of the best translations because it really means all of those things, but also to, to live in or, or to dwell in. So if you continue Excuse me, if you continue and if you remain and hold fast to and and live in and dwell in my word, you are truly my disciples, Jesus says. Let me give you three aspects of what it means then to abide in his word. The first thing it means really is to hold fast, to hold fast. 
at, at its basic, most, most elementary level, a true disciple is one who holds fast to the teachings of Jesus, who holds on to them tightly. Years later, years after this, John will put it this way in his second epistle. So he writes three more letters, and in the second one that he writes, 2 John, it's verse 9. There's, there's only one chapter in 2 John, so it's just verse 9. He writes this, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. It's pretty blunt. It's pretty blunt. There's really no other way to read it. Anyone who, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. This means that we are to hold on to the teachings of Jesus for dear life. To hold fast means that you never stop being persuaded of the veracity of the truthfulness of God's word. You never look at it and go, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I guess. Nah. It means that no other truth will ever be higher Nothing will ever be more authoritative or more truthful than God's Word. Nothing will be a higher standard. Nothing. Including science, by the way. Our world says that science is our highest standard of truth. Today, much of what we categorize as science used to be known by a different term, magic. I could go on a rant right here, but suffice it to say this. I'll give you one example. Those who hold to a literal seven-day creation, as it is clearly explained in Genesis, a creation that happened something less than 10,000 years ago, those people, and I am one, they're often called science deniers by the same people who would say that boys can be girls and girls can be boys, right? Biology deniers. Or something else that will affect us, maybe even before that does, is cultural pressures. Christians are beginning to be called human rights deniers because we hold to a, a biblical view of sexuality and marriage being reserved for one, one wife and one husband. That, that husband and that wife. I need to be even clear about all of this. Over the last four years, the voices have gotten louder and louder and louder in calling true disciples bigots. It's happening all over the place. But the Bible speaks to all of this. We are to hold fast to His Word, even in the face of, of mounting scorn, even in the face of mockery. This is the this is the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura. That's the Latin. It means Scripture alone. Scripture is our highest authority. But I also like what, what John Piper has to say about abiding in God's Word. He says this as only Piper can. He says, Abide means not ceasing to be attracted by its beauty and value, and never seeing anything as more beautiful or more valuable or more attractive than the Word and the Lord it reveals. Holding fast to His Word, all of God's Word, means never looking for salvation, it means never looking for grace or peace or love or hope anywhere else. 
It means never looking for other gods. It means never elevating other things above God to being idols. Holding fast to God's word means, means drinking living water and never thirsting. Jesus just said that. Holding fast to God's word means, means eating the bread of life and, and never ever being hungry for anything else. Holding fast to God's word means walking in the light of life. But as Christ calls us to abide in his word, that word, the word word that he uses there is the word logos. It's the same word that John used back in chapter one when he said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's talking about Jesus. It's the same word, logos, that dwelt among men. To hold fast to God's word is to hold fast to Christ himself. Remember what drove away those initial disciples in chapter 6, verse 66? I just read that. Remember what drove away those, those false disciples? It was when he said this, just before that. He said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Abides in me. Later, he'll say this in in chapter 15. He says to his disciples, he says, already you're clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This is a a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of of us holding on for dear life while at the same time we cannot forget that because of his work we are sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's remembering those things. That's what it means to abide in him to hold fast to Christ because he is holding fast to us. But not only do we hold fast to his word, abiding in his word, it also means that we obey his word. We obey his word. We hold fast to his word and we obey his word. Jesus famously commissioned his disciples, Matthew 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. You know this one too. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We live, we live in an antinomian world, an against-the-law world. We've developed a particularly a Christian subculture that says that in Christianity there are no rules, there are no laws, no simple obedience is involved in our salvation, no repentance, change, no running from our sin and running to Christ is necessary. It's okay if we look just like the world. It's okay if we look just like the world. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read Ephesians 4, 
verses seven, beginning of verse 17. See if this says that it's okay if we look just like the world. Paul writes this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. To abide in His Word means to hold fast to it, and it means to obey it. To abide in Christ is to hold fast to Christ and to obey Him. There's a third aspect of abiding in His Word, along with holding fast and obeying it, it also is practice, practicing His Word. Obeying and practicing are related, and maybe they're even synonyms in many ways. So let's think of it as internal and external, or maybe attitudes and actions. So abiding in His Word involves practicing His Word. I think that's summed up best in those next verses in Ephesians. So I read up to the end of chapter 4. Unfortunately, there's a chapter break there, but the very next words, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Abiding in his word is holding fast with all you've got, knowing that He will never let you go. It is obeying all that He commanded by by putting off the old self and, and renewing your mind. And it's being imitators of God by walking in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up on the cross for us. And all of this really is to say nothing about what it means to abide in His Word, even as a church as a group of people, as an assembly of the saints. We've really only talked about personal obedience. But the New Testament has all kinds of commands that are to be obeyed corporately as well, as a group. There are specific commands, for example, to be obeyed in worship. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, which is written to the church as an assembly, 
Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's something the church does together, regularly. And it's a product of of abiding in His Word and letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Before we finish, that was my first point, proof of discipleship. I have two more points yet. But don't worry. But I want to be very clear. True faith in Jesus Christ receives salvation, receives justification immediately. Immediately. If you believe, you are made righteous on the spot. But the validity of your faith, the trueness of your being disciple, is proven as you continue to abide in Christ, as you continue to abide in His Word, in, in, the, in the Logos, in Christ. It's proven as you continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But it's Jesus' work. It's not something you can do to be saved. Christ is the one who justifies brings us to the experience of discipleship. The first was the proof of discipleship. Now it's the experience of discipleship. At the beginning of this scene here, uh, really back in, in verse 12, kind of, it's actually kind of in the middle of the scene, but in this next section, he had said there in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will uh, have the light of life. Back in the first chapter, John chapter 1, John had called Jesus the true light, the true light which is coming into the world, he says. There is a sense in which salvation is a flipping of the switch. It's an instant light shining in our hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And once that light, that knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, once that has shown in our hearts, then the experience of discipleship causes that light to get brighter and brighter and brighter as our eyes are opened more and more and more as we come to understand more and more and more of who Christ is and what he has done, of how great our God is, of how, how deep his love is. As we continue to abide in his word, we are constantly, sometimes, usually, slowly, being shown our own sinful thoughts and attitudes as the light shines on us. This is sanctification, is being made holy. One writer said that the the Christian life, the the experience of discipleship, a a long-term Christian life, it's like being led from a a dark, cold basement and out onto that sun-drenched patio that many of us long for because it's been a long time since we've seen the sun and actually wanted to be out in it. That's what the Christian life is like. It's like waiting for summer and seeing the buds come out on the trees. And 
and looking at the grass and saying, is that getting greener? Are those, are those red-winged blackbirds? It's going to be 50. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll say it's going to be 60 this week. And then before you know it, it's going to be the dead of summer. That's what the Christian life is like, waiting for summer to come. The experience of discipleship is, is abiding in His Word, which finally shows up, finally allows us, I should say, abiding in His Word, it finally allows us to see and experience the truth, which is Christ Himself, when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Psalm 119, 105, you may have this one memorized too. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. By abiding in his word, not only will he light our way so that we don't, we don't misstep as we come up out of that dark basement, but he will lead us to the truth of salvation, sanctification, and ultimately he will lead us to glorification. He even prays for us that we would know the truth. In John chapter 17, he says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom whom you have sent. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. A true disciple is a, is a true learner. It's the person in whom doctrine, the teaching of God's Word, leads to doxology, praise of Him. He, he abides, a true disciple abides in the Word of God because it is truth. And he comes to experience the truth that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. He comes to understand the truth that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. That the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, true disciple comes to understand that by them your servant is warned and in keeping them there is great reward this is this is the blessing of discipleship this is that final point i wanted to make today the blessing of discipleship look again at verse 32 and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free salvation is freedom to be saved is to be set free by Jesus Christ. It's not a cliche. It's not a political stump speech. Salvation is being free from the fires of hell. Salvation is being free from being enslaved in your sin. The blessing of discipleship is that the truth, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, the truth sets us free from all of our sin and shame. Salvation is a work of God, and it is a complete work, and His work encompasses repentance and the confession of Jesus as Lord, 
And it involves submission and an obedient heart and loving the Lord. That's all the work of salvation. It's all the work of God. And if we abide in his word, then we can truly be called his disciples. And this is how we can know the truth that then sets us free. Because we know him who is the truth. Pray with me. God, it is my prayer that that we would genuinely know the truth of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that you have shown yourself to us, that you have revealed yourself in Jesus and in your word. You have shown us your faithfulness. You have shown us your goodness. You have shown us your mercy, your grace. You have shown us your great love for us. It is through you that we can experience peace and have hope. And so, Lord, it is my prayer that we would, that we would abide in your word. I thank you for these true disciples, Lord, those here who genuinely know and trust in you. And Lord, I pray that we would remain steadfast, that we would hold fast to your word, that we would obey your commands, that we would practice these things as we experience what it means to be a disciple. And as we understand and grow in our understanding of the blessing of discipleship. Lord, we, we praise you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.